On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and mini-series. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Norman Lebrecht to discuss his book, Why Beethoven? A Phenomenon in 100 Pieces. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we've got Norman Lebrecht, the author of why Beethoven, A Phenomenon in 100 Pieces. Norman, welcome to the show. Hi, nice to be here. Uh, this is a wonderful book. Uh, Beethoven's a little bit outside our wheelhouse. And I'm not going to pretend to be a, a classical music aficionado or romantic music, I should technically say, I guess. But I have been a fan of Beethoven since, <laughs> this is embarrassing too, since I saw Clockwork Orange as a, an 11-year-old, which <laughs> says something <laughs> about the way children were raised in the 70s and 80s. Um, but this is a you're probably You're probably reading the peanut strip. He was a fan of Beethoven too. Yes, indeed, indeed. Linus was, was uh, always shouting out Beethoven, and that definitely got my attention because I was reading Peanuts for sure. <laughs> and this is a wonderful book. Tell us about the genesis of the book and what the book project is, essentially. Um, it's well, it's called Why Beethoven, but it's about it's about life. It's about everything. Um, about a dozen years ago, I wrote a book called Why Mahler, because uh, this was a phenomenon that was unique, unique in music history. Gustav Mahler was a composer who was derided in his lifetime um, ignored, virtually ignored for half a century afterwards, and then returned to become the center of symphonic conversation. How did that happen? How had perspectives shifted so greatly? What was it about Mahler that made him unknowing, unknowable in his time and relevant to our times? When it came to Beethoven, the reverse applies. Beethoven was instantly recognized as the most important thing in music. When he came to Vienna at uh, 21 years old, everybody just stood aghast. And that this is the future of music. They said, it's the next Mozart. And Beethoven said, no, it isn't. I'm not Mozart. I'm not going down that route at all. And he, he, he set out to be as different from Mozart as he could possibly be in the first place 
confronting and affronting many, many of the rich people who had been Mozart's patrons by saying, I don't have to take your money. I choose, I choose who I accept as my sponsors, which is a complete revolution in music. So how is it that somebody can be so assured of his destiny and his destiny to be so essential, so vital that even today, we are sometimes still struggling for meaning in some of the works that Beethoven wrote. I've lived with Beethoven for much of my life, um, pretty much since childhood. But the most intense engagement came when I started to write this book, and it was the beginning of the COVID lockdown. And I realized that Beethoven had spent much of his life in lockdown. From the age of 30, he was deaf. His, uh, most of his social relationships were shut down by his inability to hear, his inability to communicate. Um, people would write something in his conversation book, and he would write something back, but that's not satisfactory at all. So Beethoven had... A, a kind of parallel lockdown and re-listening to his music, re-reading his music through those extraordinary uh, life-constricting conditions of the pandemic was almost um, a new shining pathway into them of seeing what it is like to live almost completely alone. Why Beethoven is not a question. Why Beethoven is a statement. We need him now more than ever. I'd have to agree. I found this to be an incredibly powerful book. For one thing, this was the first book I've read that seemed to have processed the COVID experience that we all went through. It was this massive shared trauma that seems to have been memory hold and forgotten as we plunge back into commerce and spending and doing. And it needs to be remembered because it was... We so want to forget it, don't we? Yes, we, yes. We, when, uh, at the beginning of COVID, I, I, um, I went looking for books about the Spanish flu of uh, the, the pandemic of 1918 to 1921, in which more people were killed than in the First World War. And there is hardly anything um, in any language known to me written about the subject because people just wanted to wipe it out. They didn't, they'd, they'd been through a horrible thing and they didn't want to look back at it. And, and we're feeling that way about the COVID pandemic now. Yes, we are. But Beethoven, on the other hand, we do like to look back at it. And the structure of your book, because it's not only, it's not a, you know, it's a chapter by chapter analysis of, of a lot of his work. But you, um, it also functions as sort of a pocket biography of Beethoven, or it tells much of his life story, retells much of his life story. But but describe the actual project. You You initially... It's the book is a survey of all the recorded versions of Beethoven works that we have. But tell us how you boiled that down so it was a, a, a functional, something a project that you could pull off. It, it it wasn't it wasn't that difficult. I mean, there there are a number of ways that you can approach Beethoven. The biography essentially is uninteresting. He's born in Bonn. He leaves at the age of 21, and he never goes back. He stays in Vienna the rest of his life. He will go for his summer holidays in the woods in what is now the Czech Republic. But otherwise, he doesn't travel at all. He has no curiosity. He has no need to travel. One of the first things, one of the ways that I approach Beethoven was to ask myself not what he did, but what he didn't do. One of the first things he didn't do, he never went to the sea. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> um, no curiosity, no urge to dabble his, his toes in the waves. He never went to the sea. He never traveled anywhere. He didn't need to because his entire world was 
interiorized, and that was all he needed in order to make the music. So to discover Beethoven, you discover him not from the biography, and to a degree not even from the things he scribbled in the conversation books or the anecdotes that are told about him, many of which are, are, are spurious, but from what is actually inside and what he is putting down as notes on the page. Over the last decade, we've been very fortunate. Many of Beethoven's manuscripts have been digitized. So even in COVID lockdown, I could go online and I could follow Beethoven's hand down the page and I could see the the hesitations, the erasures, the second thoughts, the way in which Beethoven normally so secure about what he's doing suddenly gets stuck and thinks, no, not this way. It breaks off, doesn't want to continue with this work, maybe come back to it later. Um, the letters that he wrote to people, those things, that's where, that's where Beethoven emerges and in the music in, itself. Now, the music is it's there on the page, but even more so, it's there in 100 years of recording. So we have to look at how other great musical minds have conceived of Beethoven over the course of slightly more than a century. And if I just give one example, let's just take a look at the Russians. There was a brilliant uh, piano teacher in Moscow called Heinrich Neuhaus. He was himself uh, a phenomenal Beethoven pianist, and he had four-star pupils, all of whom recorded almost the whole of Beethoven. Two of the names are very well known, Emil Gilels, Sviatoslav Richter. Two others were hardly ever allowed to, to leave Russia, if at all, and they were Maria Greenberg and Maria Yudina. All four are pupils of Neuhaus. You listen to them play something like the Opus 111, the 32nd Piano Sonata, the second movement, and you can hardly believe they're playing the same work. Each has applied an interpretation to the notes, to the spaces between the notes, to the phrasing, to the dynamics that makes the work sound completely different from the other three pianists, but also from the recording of their teacher Neuhaus. So what you realize through this is that Beethoven music is not a very... Um, accurate art. It's an approximate art. Uh, to, to, to notate music is only to give a vague idea of what's going through the composer's head. In this case, these phenomenal interpreters have almost created new works in the way that they approached and recorded the Opus 111. Take that then across the whole spectrum of Beethoven's works, and we're talking about 250 works. If I can jump in, Norman, I wanted to play our first song snippet. And 30 seconds is just not a great way to (laughs) introduce bits of Beethoven. But what I wanted to do was focus on uh, the Fifth Symphony, since it's the most well-known piece, and you talk about it extensively. And I wanted, and and it was also fairly easy to find five, four 30-second pieces that are impactful. And this is the famous opening of the Fifth Symphony as recorded by Carlos Kleber with the Philharmonica in 1975, which is widely believed to be one of the best recorded versions of the Fifth Symphony. Let's hear how he he opened the famous symphony.
And that was Carlos Kleber conducting the Philharmonica in 1975 in a piece that's widely regarded as one of the best recorded versions of the Fifth Symphony. And Norman, the, this book also functions as a mini biography of many of these musicians, because we learn about Kleiber and his father, Eric. Uh, you mentioned the four Russian pianists. There's the um, German conductors, some of whom uh, Eric Kleiber was famously anti-Nazi, but some of the composers we discussed were pro-Nazi who went on to very successful careers, pro-World War II. It's very fascinating introduction to a whole cast of characters beyond Beethoven, but I wanted to zero in on one aspect of his personality, which was his relationships to the nobles. And then the opening piece, you're talking about the pathetique, pathetique, which as an aside, you uh, had to share this quote, more people learn to hate Beethoven from being taught this sonata from any, than from any other cause. <laughs> and I could, <laughs> I could identify with that from my very uh, unsuccessful piano lessons. But in that chapter, you describe his relationship with Prince Lichnowsky, who is one, was one of Mozart's patrons, is widely considered to be one of the people who ruined Mozart, that he sued Mozart for money shortly before Mozart's death, and that was a contributing factor. Can you give a quick capsule version of the relationship between Beethoven and Lichnowsky and Beethoven's famous, famous uh, parting bon mot to the prince? Well, Beethoven comes to Vienna, and and uh, very quickly there are people who... who, who uh, want to know him and want his music and they want to have their name on his music because if you are um, an idle rich man, the only way you can secure the best way to secure posterity is um, is by getting your name onto a piece of music by the greatest living composer. I mean, you know, there is Beethoven's Waldstein Sonata. Who would ever remember Count Waldstein if he hadn't paid for a sonata? So one of the first to come after Beethoven was Karl Lichnowsky, and Beethoven knew there was something about something fishy about Lichnowsky. Lichnowsky was court chamberlain at the imperial court in Vienna. It's a very, very important position. According to some documents, uh, he was also head or deputy head of the secret police. He had some dark connections. He was he was further. He'd been Mozart's patron, but there had been a falling out, and Lichnowsky sued Mozart in court for money that he claimed to have lent him. Mozart lost, and weeks later was dead. So there is a bit of a shadow around Lichnowsky, but Lichnowsky comes over to Beethoven. He's a young man, he's 21 years old, and embraces him and says, look, I have this wonderful mansion. Come and live in my mansion. Um, I will give you as many rooms as you like, and uh, I will buy you some instruments. He actually bought him two Stradivari violins and a viola, and, um, wow. and you can play the best pianos in Vienna and in the ballroom downstairs you can give concerts and we will you will have no expenses at all you can you can eat the best food uh, in 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 the mansion and uh, make yourself entirely at home and Beethoven initially accepted this and then he realized that the life of luxury was possibly not the place where he wanted to live, because in Vienna it was also the lap of debauchery. Um, it is said, and we, we can't prove this, it, 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 is, uh, it is said that Lichnowsky could only ever um, have relations with his wife 
in a brothel. They were arranged to meet in a brothel on Thursday night, and that was the only place where he could achieve arousal. Um, this kind of um, atmosphere spread into his lodgings. There are reports that a couple of his um, associates offered Beethoven to have sex with their wives, and Beethoven didn't want any of it, and he moved out, and, and that was it. And um, the relationship was fraying, where at a certain point he'd agreed to play at a country that Lichnowsky went to for long weekends. And he looked out into the audience and saw that there were a lot of French army officers. The French were occupying Vienna at that time. Uh, Beethoven did not like that, and he did not like people who collaborated with the enemy. And after he had performed the second symphony, which was dedicated to Lichnowsky, um, Lichnowsky said to him, now come on, dear Beethoven, play something new. And Beethoven said basically, I'm sorry, I don't take requests. Um, <laughs> and Lichnowsky said, well, you know, um, you know who I am and you know I'm really, you really ought to, to, to meet the requests that I'm making of you. Beethoven at this point got up, took the piano stool, threw it into the audience and ran out into the night. It was a stormy night. He walked six miles to the nearest town. He saw a sign showing where the doctor lived. He banged on his door. The doctor let him in and, and he slept the night there. And in the morning, he took a carriage back to Vienna. And when the prince came back to Vienna, he summoned Beethoven. Beethoven didn't come. The prince had to go around to Vienna and demanded an apology. Uh, had to go around to Beethoven and uh, demanded an apology, and Beethoven refused. And and his, uh, the prince said, "You know, come on, Beethoven. You, you can't behave like that to my guests." Beethoven said, "There are many princes in the world. There's only one Beethoven." <laughs> and that remark went viral in Vienna. Everybody realized that a musician who lived on his music and on his wits had stood up to one of the most powerful men in the empire and showed him the door, basically. And nothing happened to him. Nobody could touch him because he was right. He was Beethoven. What happened from there on is even more interesting. Prince had a younger brother, a count. Who... If I can jump in and interrupt you with another song snippet, and then we'll come back and, and tell the story sure. of the younger brother. So this sure. is, again, um, from the same performance of, of The Fits by Carlos Kleiber with the Philharmonica. And this is the Andante, which you say yields a brief relief, like coffee in an <laughs> interrogation room. And that, again, was uh, from Carlos Kleiber's version of the Fifth Symphony, recorded in 1975 with the Philharmonica Orchestra. And uh, this was the Andante. And so back to the younger brother of the prince. So Beethoven is then approached by the prince's younger brother, Count Moritz Lichnowsky. Uh, relations between the two brothers are not great. Moritz says to him, I hear, um, I hear you've sacked my brother. Would it be all right if I commissioned a couple of pieces from you? Beethoven said, with pleasure. I choose who my sponsors are. And I became quite friendly with the younger brother. Eventually, time moves on, Prince Karl Lichnowsky falls from power, and he's getting on in years. 
And one day Beethoven is sitting composing and he sees the prince walking up the road towards his cottage. And so he gets up and slams the door shut. Prince comes banging on the door. Nobody answers. Sits down on the stone steps outside, waits a couple of hours. Nobody comes out. So he goes home. Next day, same scenario. Keeps on coming, keeps on knocking at the door. Finally, Beethoven opens the door and says, what do you want? And Prince Lichnowsky says to him, I, I just want you to say good morning to me. Beethoven <laughs> says, good morning, thank you, goodbye. He has completely rewritten the relationship between music and money and power. The power now lies in the hands of the creative forces of the musicians. The rest just have to follow. Yeah, it's and it's an incredible. I I, I hadn't realized any of that context, and it's an, an incredible pivot point in the relationship of individuals to the fuel, the the ancient regime, the fuel system, the money, the power, and also one thing that was fascinating. I knew that Beethoven was likely celibate or a virgin his entire life, but I didn't realize the context, and I had sort of written him off as a prude. But when you so vividly portray the frankly, disgustingly decadent environment in Vienna in which some of his fellow musicians were selling their preteen children to predatory members of the aristocracy. It suddenly becomes very clear why Beethoven was so repulsed by this. And as a, a romantic in, in the sense we usually use romantic, not, not this other sense in which he was romantic, the Byronic sense, but it, it suddenly becomes this moral stand and and his quest for love was also you know he was really focused on his art that, that it's 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 fascinating to compare him to somebody like list or any of the rock stars i cover on this where there's a thing a concept i call kind of the orpheus tax and mm -hmm. every great musician seems to pay it and beethoven didn't have the wild living. He wasn't, you know, profligate. He didn't have, you know, a big rise and sudden fall. He, he didn't have those kind. Of, he had this very contained life. But the deafness is obviously there's where he paid. He's so isolated, and yet he he rose through it. And it, describe it, his work life and how he focused strictly on his art. I mean, it's worth, worth just pausing for a moment on his attitude to sex and love. Um, one of the yes, things please. that Beethoven, one of the, when I asked myself, what did Beethoven not do? He never made love. He never had sex within a relationship and quite possibly never had sex at all. There are, there are hints that he may have once gone to a brothel with, on, on, on a dare with a friend, but there, there is also no confirmation that, that he had intercourse with any of the occupants. Um, Beethoven's attitude to sex was, it was unnecessary. He was so totally dedicated to making art, to making music, to bringing out what he had in himself that he didn't want that kind of connection with another human being. He liked being in love. He loved being in love. Sometimes he needed to be in love, but he always chose women who were unattainable, who were of the aristocracy, who were never going to be allowed to marry a musician of the lower classes. And so love for Beethoven was an ideal. It was never a physical intimacy. Everything had to go, everything had to be dedicated towards 
is his pursuit of the music. Um, there is there have been an awful lot written and an awful lot filmed about Beethoven's romantic life and about his his uh, uh, the, the the search for the unattainable beloved. But every time you start researching into what really went on, you find there was no beloved there. I mean, you hear even today you hear pianists talk of 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 Beethoven writing that ubiquitous little ringtone piece uh, for Elise for some uh, for one of his his distant beloveds it wasn't and the name um it's i've been able to prove that um beethoven never knew anybody called elise the name was supplied by someone else altogether so um beethoven's purpose in life was to make music and to make music for everyone he never saw music as being the domain of the privileged or the domain of the rich Everything he did was 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 geared to making music for the widest possible audience. Uh, he wasn't concerned about wealth and privilege. He wanted to bring music to everyone. One of the most striking things is when it comes to the premiere of the Ninth Symphony, the biggest work ever written at that time. Um, people said to him, "Better, what do you think you're doing? You're putting it on on a Friday when all." The wealthy people in Vienna have gone out to their, their, their country homes and they're hunting and shooting and fishing and doing whatever else you do in country homes. And there's going to be no, there's going to be no audience of quality to hear your Ninth Symphony. And Beethoven said, good, I want it to be for the people. And, of course, the message that comes over from the Ninth Symphony is that all of us are brothers. All of us are one of the same. His relationships with individuals were, was was never geared to status. He could um, he he could value someone according to who they are, according to what they did, rather than according to who they are. Where? And let's go ahead and take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll talk about the Fifth Symphony and its origins. Mm. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. 
I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, (laughs) oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash Pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. So, Norman, you go through a lot of the works in the book, but I want to zero in on the Fifth Symphony because um, it's the most well-known piece. And it's also one I think we can discuss to some satisfaction in the, in the short period of time we had have left. And, and you talk about... Um, one of your quotes is that little that Beethoven did penetrated on first hearing, yet musicians in public understood that it was somehow exalted, existing on a plane higher than anyone else's. Is that true of the famous Fifth Symphony with the opening motif? It seems to me like that would have made an immediate immediate sense to anyone with ears. Is that Was that not the case at the time? That was the case. That was the case. The, the Fifth Symphony had, the Fifth and Sixth Symphonies, which were premiered together, had instant impact. People understood that um, this is music that they could relate to, and it seemed to relate also to the time they were in, which was time of the Napoleonic Wars, when armies were rampaging across Europe and, and the whole social order was being turned upside down. So it provided um, almost an oracle for where the world was going. But the question always was how to perform them. I mean, you think the opening of the Fifth Symphony, da-da-da-dum, that ought to be 
fairly easy. Well, no two performances are the same. And many of them sound um, really quite weird to our ears. The earliest recording was made by a man called Arthur Nickish in a box room in Berlin in 1913. And that has a kind of stentorian sound, a kind of summons that seems credible. But an awful lot of others, are, are just, they're just so variable. They're all over the place. And it was very difficult. Um, people said, well, can you recommend me a recording? It was really, really difficult until in 1975, a man called, Irish, uh, man called Carlos Kleiber came along. And he was hardly known. His father, Erich Kleiber, was well known. Um, but he was, this is a young man who's just um, just cutting his teeth as a major conductor. And he produces a recording of the Fifth Symphony in Vienna, which strikes almost everyone as immaculate. Now, how does one explain that? How is it that... Um, 200 years, sorry, that um, 150 years go by since Beethoven died, and it's taken all that time for one person to come along and grasp that symphony whole in a manner that all of us can stand back and say, this is it. Um, what is it that happened in the transaction between this young man, Carlos Kleiber, who was, his father was German, his mother was American, he was born in Argentina, English was, English was his first language. And um, what actually happened? And this is one of the great mysteries of music, that every now and then, no matter how often you go to concerts, how often you hear performances, every now and then, you will hear a performance that sounds absolutely right. Equally, every now and then you will hear a performance that sounds absolutely wrong. But <laughs> music, music is music is fluid. It's impossible to trap it. It's a continuing process. It reflects the world around it. There, um, there is a recording of the Fifth Symphony by the Berlin Philharmonic conductor Wilhelm Furtwängler towards the end of the Nazi regime, in which you can practically hear the walls of Berlin falling. You understand that the that that that, that the regime is crumbling and the wall the war the, the war is about to end. How is it possible that Beethoven's uh, symphony, in this case actually it's the violin concerto, how is it possible that Beethoven's violin concerto can capture so precisely the atmosphere in late 1944, early 1945? Just. Um, it's because Beethoven gave us the template. Beethoven gave a template that can actually respond to everything that we are experiencing today in the summer of 2023. And one thing I thought was fascinating, like I said, you tell the story of not just Beethoven, but also many of the musicians who've interpreted his work. Tell us a little about how Carlos Kleber uh, related to the symphonic music business in Europe in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. This guy wrote his own ticket. Tell us what he did. The, and how did he pull it off? It was, it, it, I mean, it's a one-off story. Uh, Carlos Kleiber had a difficult relationship with his father. His father had been a successful conductor of modern music in 
Germany um, before Hitler came to power. Um, he gave the first performance of what's regarded as, as, as the first great modernist opera, Wozzeck, in Berlin in 1926. There were 126 rehearsals in order to get this work on the stage with a modicum of accuracy. So he was a great, his father was a great trailblazer. He was a really interesting and important conductor, but he went into exile in Argentina, the other end of the world. He wasn't Jewish. He went into exile as a matter of principle and protest against the Hitler regime. And when he came back to Europe after the war, practically nobody wanted to know him. So his last years were really pretty miserable. And Carlos, he did everything he possibly could to prevent his son Carlos from becoming a conductor. And Carlos became a conductor despite this. But very often what he did as a conductor was a kind of uh, counterpoint to his father's life. So he became a conductor, but he refused to take any jobs. He didn't want to be music director anywhere. anywhere. He became a freelance conductor. And because he was so gifted and so interesting and so engaged with the musicians, musicians derived so much from what he did with them, he was constantly in demand and able to obtain the highest fees. So it was said of him that he only ever conducted when his refrigerator was empty. Um, he conducted almost at whim, and he canceled more often than he conducted. So he lived this almost um, vagrant life, conducting when he pleased, recording when he chose, living for the most part on a mountaintop in Slovenia, uh, communicating with very, very few friends, very few indeed. I mean, he had half a dozen friends around the world, again, taken from different strata of society with whom he wrote letters in English. Um, and eventually, like his father, despaired and took his own life. It's an extraordinary life, and it's a life that is best expressed by the work that he did in Beethoven and the recordings that he made of Beethoven. So for um, to be able to reflect the achievement of this extraordinarily gifted musician through the legacy of Beethoven's extraordinary music seemed to me a story worth telling. Indeed. And let's hear uh, a little bit of from his third movement, which reprises the opening theme. This is again from the Carlos Kleber, a 1975 recording with the Philharmonica in Vienna. That was the opening of the third movement by from Carlos Cleaver's uh, version of this Fifth Symphony of Beethoven, recorded in 1975 with the Vienna Philharmonica. Um, and it's so funny because you know on this show we've we've talked about blues artists, we've talked about hip hop artists, rock stars, jazz musicians, a little bit of classical, and and Cleaver sounds so much like the blues artist Jimmy Reed or John Lee Hooker, who, <laughs> who would only perform or sign a record deal when they were broke. And he's also kind of like a mini Beethoven who's writing his own ticket and very much yeah. declaring his independence. And, and you know, you, you talk about a stunt he pulled where he rehearsed with an orchestra and set out on a tour and quit halfway 
and yet was rehired to do it again, which in rock, in the yeah. rock music world, Neil Young's the only one I can think of to do that. So it's just fascinating to me, these parallels. Uh, musicians are musicians, no matter the genre, it seems, and, 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 and find their own way because of their personal prowess. Completely, completely unpredictable. A record company hired him to record the opera Wozzeck, which was his father's creation, in at a cost of a million dollars in the 1980s. And um, Kleiber decided who was going to be in the cast and everything. It was all done to his satisfaction. He didn't show up for the recording. Money was lost. And the record company then went after him and tried to get him to record something else. Just everybody wanted a part of this person because he was a unique object. He was a unique artist, as indeed was Beethoven. And you know when you're standing in the presence of a one-off or when you're listening to a one-off and you are enhanced by it. Absolutely. And and this book is full of one-offs. There's so many um, musicians that you introduced me to and so many versions you introduced me to. And you also sort of, I, I, it's widely known, I guess, but the, the, the opening motif of the Fifth Symphony, that's something that Beethoven had included in another piece. It, it appears before his final <laughs> encapsulation. And he does this again with, with other themes that he's going to use again. Talk about that. How did Beethoven you know, organize his work such that, that he was able to elaborate on little themes and ideas from smaller pieces and build them into bigger and bigger pieces as he went on. Things come and go in Beethoven and 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 you you really need to to look at the music in its totality um, uh, to um, to get an idea of the world that he inhabited. I mean, yes, the opening of the Fifth Symphony da, 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 um, is found in a little piece for uh, one piano, four hands, that he wrote in his teens. Well, clearly that theme stayed in his unconscious all those years and popped out in the Fifth Symphony. There are other things that come up in one of the late quartets. You suddenly hear, out of nowhere, the Jewish prayer, Kol Nidre, now, Beethoven was not Jewish. Um, he hadn't heard any Jewish music in his deafness, but he might as a teenager. Um, you go back and you trace it. And I found that there was a tiny synagogue in Bonn when he was, when he was growing up as a teenager. And it's possible that on, on um, one summer's evening uh, at the start of Yom Kippur, he heard this tune and it stayed in his mind and it pops up in almost one of the last works that he writes, um, not for any specific purpose, but because it feeds into the stream of thought that he is pursuing in this particular late quartet. I should tell you that the late quartets were considered unplayable um, during his lifetime. They were hardly done in Vienna at all. They re only received um, their first real performances in London in the 1840s, and uh, the man behind them was the co-owner of the Times newspaper who'd been trying to play them with three friends at home. 
So uh, <laughs> the, the, the trace the the way that you trace the evolution of of Beethoven and his music, um, it takes it takes so many paths, and there are so many stories, and there are so many ways in which it feeds into all kinds of music today that you're looking at a world entire. And I'm going to play our last song snippet, and, and we're going to switch it up and play and hear from the father, Eric Kleiber's uh, version of, of um, the Symphony Number no. 5. And this is from a 1953 recording of the Fifth Symphony conducted by Eric Kleiber. And as you say, it is as if Carlos wins every battle, only for his father to win the war. The scares are restrained <laughs> and all power held in reserve for the lightning strike finale of devastating irremediable savagery. Let's hear some irremediable savagery. Kleiber um, playing the fifth, conducting the Fifth Symphony in 1953, and as you say, uh, uh, a finale of devastating, irremediable savagery. And I, any heavy metal fan would react to that. This is just immensely powerful, st- straight in your face music. But as you say, you said something fascinating that I wanted to get you to elaborate on. You said that Beethoven was not so much disorganized as a willful organizer of musical chaos. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. He um, he lived in circumstances of the most terrible squalor. Um, he changed home quite often, and uh, if you went into his room, it would be everything would be scattered around, and there would be a bad smell. There was um, um, someone reports or visit to Beethoven that there was an unemptied chamber pot beneath the seat on which he was sitting and composing. He didn't want people to visit him. He didn't want people to waste his time. So he kept his own circumstances in, he kept his own home in, in, in such a way that would deter people from coming by. Um, He, he reveled in chaos because in music, he was constantly pursuing order. He was looking for solutions. He was looking to find a way beyond the music of today and a way beyond the music of this planet. Often when you go into the the late works, you actually think that Beethoven is taking leave of this earth and going out somewhere into the spheres. And it's as though this world is full of chaos and corruption and only at some distance from this world, somewhere out there in space, in eternity, can he help us to make sense of it. Um, He... He was hopeless in his personal relationships. He 
when he came to conduct the Ninth Symphony, uh, a couple of friends came around and said, where's, where's your conducting jacket? He didn't have one. He didn't have any jacket except some <laughs> horrible green green thing with patches in it. So they had to scavenge around and find a jacket for him to conduct one of the greatest works of Western civilization, the Ninth Symphony, All Men Shall Be Brothers. <laughs> and you, you talk about the debut of the Fifth Symphony in which it was a complete fiasco where he's knocking candles off the piano he couldn't stand. Hear. He couldn't hear by this time. The only way you could hear was by bending down and putting his ear as close as possible to the floorboards so that he could feel the vibrations coming off the floor and from the vibrations somehow feel the music, get some sensory uh, stimulus of the music and know where the players actually were. The concertmaster, the leading violinist, would say to the players beforehand, don't watch him, watch me. (laughs) Don't follow his bait. Don't follow his beat because he's all over the place he can't hear a thing i mean it's one of the great tragedies that this this phenomenal creator of music could not hear the music he created yeah and and yet he was so productive and methodical i mean he he really just focused his life on writing music and living in this interior world and as he became deaf and his social world shrank his musical world expanded and there's this contradiction i want to throw two of your quotes at you and get you to sort Mm. of untangle the contradiction on the one hand you say that his genius was instantly recognized and lastingly acknowledged Mm -hmm. but you also say that little that he did penetrated on first hearing, yet musicians in public both understood that it was somehow exalted, existing on a plane higher than anyone else's. Untangle that, like, like how, how could that be? Did people just intuit that something was going on without actually understanding the music until later? Or? This is extremely rare in the history of civilization. I think if you want a parallel, it's probably Leonardo da Vinci. People looked at his sketches and they looked at his inventions. They didn't know where they come from and they, where they came from and they didn't know what they meant. Um, when Leonardo invented if what we know today as photography, nobody in his time realized what it was or what it might be. They just knew that Leonardo was this phenomenal mind who applied a kind of an artistic sensibility to the invention of new technology. It was a similar thing with Beethoven. They didn't understand the music that he made. Every now and then he would he would please them with a little dance movement and they'd say, oh, we like that. Yes, it sets the feet tapping. Oh, yeah, we could probably get out on the floor and, and have a little twirl with that. But the the entirety of a piece of music, a whole symphony. It was above their heads. They didn't know it. What they knew, what they recognized, was that Beethoven was operating at a level just above the understanding of his time. Everybody was sort of reach higher and higher and higher in order to grasp Beethoven, and he was just beyond that. It's very, very hard for me to find any parallel apart from Leonardo. But the two go well together because if you look at the four pillars on which Western civilization rests, you would very quickly come to a consensus that they were Leonardo, Michelangelo, Shakespeare, Beethoven. Take away any of those and the whole of what we know as culture and civilization collapses. There are very few names that you could add to that set that would 
be of 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 a comparable um, contribution to civilization. So you're talking here when you're talking about Beethoven, you're talking of somebody who made the world that we live in today, who um, whatever kind of music that you like, whatever it is that you read, whatever art that it is that you've seen has been in some way or other influenced by this extraordinary individual who died in 1827. And to know that, um, to discover more of him through the music, to bring him to a wider audience, well, that's why I wrote the book, Why Beethoven. And well, well said. And, and you also say something, you say that we owe him the gratitude we pay to the greatest of our species. And yet when you mm. were writing this book, there were some calls to, quote unquote, cancel Beethoven. And while yeah. I'm sympathetic, very sympathetic as an American, I've seen American police state racism firsthand over and over throughout my life. And mm. I'm sympathetic to people who feel drowned out by dead white men and, and the cultural legacy. But at the same time, you framed Beethoven as kind of a bulwark of the best of Western civilization that when people call to cancel Beethoven, it wasn't, it's just not happening. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, like describe that. How did Beethoven like sort of shelter the rest of Western civilization behind his, his noble brow? Well, it's exactly that. I mean, there was one, one academic who, um, in agitating for Beethoven to be cancelled, so well he's just above average. You know, he's he, he's no better than any number of black composers, <laughs> which is a proposition that's so ridiculous. Not because of the comparison, but the idea that his Beethoven is just above average that it it just got laughed out of court. Um, you you can't fail to recognise the. Um, the way in which Beethoven steps out of the ordinary, he is never ordinary, even trivial pieces have something that will surprise you, have something that will open your eyes and open your ears. So to get caught in in the current um, wave of, of, of cancel culture, which I think, by the way, is receding now. Yes, quite. It's unfortunate. Is unfortunate, but it leaves it leaves no lasting stain on Beethoven's work. Definitely not. Definitely not. And um, I want to wrap with 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 two quotes from you um, that you express thankfulness for a wayward genius who walks on unpaved paths and brings dirt into the house. <laughs> Elaborate <laughs> on that just a little bit. <laughs> well, he does. I, 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 there is something. There is something incredibly human about Beethoven and the way that he writes music and the um, his his lack of regard for convention, his lack of regard for courtesy, and the fact that yes, he often has muck on his shoes and he tramps it into the house. Um, he will go out for a walk with a couple of people and they'll be having a very nice time in the country, in the meadows, and they'll stop for a beer somewhere and then he'll come back home. I mean, he won't be hearing much of what they're, anything of what they're saying, if any communication will be in the little in the little conversation book. He'll come back home and he will say to them, Okay, you can go now. I've got to compose that. 
<laughs> so whatever it was that had happened that afternoon, a work has been forming in his mind, and he's going to bring everything. He's going to bring the birds and 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 the smells of the countryside and the babbling of the brook and everything else. It's all going to come in some form, possibly mutated, in in the work that he is creating. He is there as a creative machine. Everything that he experiences in life is then going to be turned into the music of the spheres. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll wrap with this quote. I'm not going to ask you to reply to this. I think this says everything. There are no losers, no winners, no victims or avengers, no greed or grudges, only an eruptive collective delight in being alive and human at this climactic moment in music, experiencing together the best of all possible worlds. And so, Norman, um, the book is Why Beethoven? My guest has been Norman Lebrecht. And thank you so much for for the education you've given me on Beethoven, and I hope many of our listeners will, will join in because it's an incredible body of work, and I think you've introduced it. You've made the symphonic catalog or the, 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 the recorded catalog of Beethoven quite digestible, and this book is a great guide to, to attack the, the canon, I think. So thank you very much for coming on the show. It was my great pleasure. Thank you so much. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, Nate and Ned Sublet continue the Latin Roll miniseries. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. to achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.